And it's the Animal Chat Podcast, the number one hit podcast with me, Matthew Payne. And me, Harry Ekman. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing well, Harry. I'm doing well. How are you? Doing very well. Another week, another podcast. Yep, we're back again. It's fortnightly now, in case you hadn't noticed. Yeah, we, we're busy bees at the moment, aren't we, Harry? We are. We're very busy bees. Yeah, but I think people are quite happy with it to be every two weeks, if they know that it's going to be every two weeks. Yeah, I think so. I think people... For, oh, Harry, I wanted to give a shout-out. We got a shout-out, yeah? I wanted, to, I wanted to thank the Canine Behaviour Team at Dogs Trust for publicising our podcast on International Podcast Day. We were their number one they shared and promoted, so... Thank you very much, Canine Behaviour Team at Dogs Trust. That is much appreciated. Yep, shout-out to all the team there. Haven't seen them in about nine years, but you know. So, what have you been up to this week, Matt? Um, busy, busy working, Harry. Busy, busy working. COVID, strategy stuff, all that kind of stuff. What about you? Actually, these last couple of weeks, I had eye surgery. No! I had eye surgery. What happened? Yeah. Did they put one in? Uh, basically, I wanted to look like a pirate. It was a very elaborate Halloween costume. I decided to have the eye mm-hmm. actually removed. Yeah. I'm properly going, like, method. Yeah, for, you, you for suffer Halloween. for your art, don't you? You suffer yeah, for absolutely. your art. Like, I'm not just like your average pirate that's going to wear a patch. I'm having my leg removed next week as well, just Amazing. for the, the full effect. And I'm training a parrot. No, seriously, I had corrective surgery on my eye. You know, like laser eye surgery? Oh, yeah. oh my God. I what? didn't get laser eye surgery. I oh. got something else. <laughs> <laughs> you know laser eye yeah. surgery? Well, you, I didn't get that. <laughs> did you go to somebody down the back street, Harry, sort of above uh, a shop? Basically, a bloke just punched me in the eye and said, yeah. you'll be able to see better yeah. now. Now give me uh, a fiver. That's five yeah, pounds. Give me a fiver. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm punching in the other eye. Uh, no, I had... Um, do you wear glasses at all, Matt? No, I don't, Harry. You know what? I've um, had many problems in my life, but one of them has not been my eyesight. Luckily, I'm deaf as a bat, but I'm, I can see quite well. Well, that's good to know. So I'm short-sighted, and I've always worn glasses or contact lenses. Mm-hmm. And so I've been wanting to get this laser eye surgery for a long time. And so I went to the specialist and got my eyes checked. And he actually said, for me, a better option would be what they call an implanted contact lens. So you know how a contact works. You just kind of pop it on your eye yeah, and, yeah. and yeah. then take it off at the end of the day. This, what they do is they make a tiny incision, like a two millimeter incision on the edge of your cornea already. Nope. And, insert, <laughs> and insert a lens, tiny like wafer thin oh, lens over your existing lens, but underneath your cornea. So it's like inserted in your eye. And so it's this permanent implant. I know I've spoken to a lot of people and like a lot of people really squeamish about eyes and the idea of cutting your eye open and shoving something in it. You know something? I um, One thing I found out, Harry, since I've got older is that I faint at the sight of blood now. It's honestly, (laughs) it's not something that I used to have when I was younger, but I remember I was in surgery once with, um, you know, David Yates at the RSPCA? Yes. So he very kindly let me spend the day with him in Manchester. Chester, watching cats and dogs getting neutered. Fun day out. I know, fun day out, exactly. And honestly, when they cut the first cat open, I could feel myself start swaying. I was like, I'm about to faint in front of like four young teenage student doctors and David Yates, who is like one of the eminent vets in the country. And I'm just going to collapse. It was ridiculous. First time I ever met David. Luckily, I didn't collapse, but I was so close. And there's been a couple of other times I have actually had seizures and fainted at the sight of blood. I had a seizure once. I don't know what happened. I ca- Jesus. I fa- yeah, I fainted and had a seizure at the sight of blood. <laughs> <laughs> Never used to happen, but honestly, I was so scared. But David was really nice about it. But I was just sort of beginning to sway. I was like, "Oh, I'm going to go head first into this cat um, on the table." But yeah, 
So, um, so healing. What happened? What? Like, were you awake for it? No, no. They they put you under like a mild general anaesthetic. It only takes like ten minutes to do. Like, how long does oh, it take to God. poke a hole in your eye? I mean, that's it. Oh. But they, what they do is they do yeah. one eye, and then a couple of weeks later they did the other eye, just in case one of your eyes falls out. You know, just to be yeah. safe. Yeah. And that only happens like fifty percent of the time, anyway. Worth the risk. What a big risk. Are you left-handed or right-handed? I'm right-handed. And do you know you have the same way you have a dominant arm or a dominant foot? Did you know you have a yeah. dominant eye as well? No. It's true. I didn't I didn't realize this, but apparently it's like one of the tests they do when you get this. So you're either left-eyed or right-eyed. You actually have a dominant eye. And so okay. my left eye is my dominant eye. So I decided right. to have my right eye done first because I thought, well, if they're going to fuck yeah. one up, they might as well fuck up the one that's rubbish anyway. Yeah, the weak eye. <laughs> exactly. So... <laughs> They did the implant in the right eye. The left eye, I was just wearing my normal contact lens. And my right eye, for a couple of days, it was absolutely fine. And then, because my left eye is my dominant eye, my right eye, again, you won't know this because you don't wear lens or glasses or anything like that. But when you switch between glasses and lenses, there's this moment where your brain goes something's different. I have yeah. to work out how to see stuff again. And so, when you kind of switch up what you're looking through, your brain then goes, hang on a second, got to work this out. And so what was happening is I had this chameleon thing going on in my head where I had two completely <laughs> independent eyes, one that was focusing through the implant lens yeah. and one that was focusing through the contact lens that was used to. And because my left eye is my dominant eye, my right eye was just going, oh, this is new. <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure what it, and, and it was like, and, and for a couple of days it was going, oh, I'm really going to try it, really going to try and focus. <laughs> and, then, and then at one point after about four days, it just went, fuck this. I've had enough of this. This is too hard. Like left eye, you take it from here. And so my right eye just made this agreement. It was like, you know what? I'm just going to casually focus into middle distance. And if anything happens to pass through, you'll be able to see it. But if you want me to work, you need to do something about this. And then when I had the follow-up surgery and the left eye got the implant lens, my right eye suddenly went, ah, okay, got it now. I just needed you to show me what to do. And so now I can see perfectly out of both eyes. But for that two weeks, it was ridiculous. <laughs> oh, Harry. Oh, so you feeling better now? Though? Yeah, honestly, my vision is so clear now. Having had glasses and contact lenses for my entire adult life, I don't remember ever being able to see this clearly. Like the vision correction is absolutely perfect. The only thing is, and this is another thing that I found out subsequently, is I have little halos. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I there's a doctor listening to this going, like, Jesus, this guy needs to be. When you wear glasses or you, you wear sunglasses and stuff, I'm yeah, sure, yeah. you don't notice it. But if you were to pay attention, you'd notice where the edge of the glasses frame of is, course, right? Yeah, you yeah, know, your yeah. brain just kind of cuts it out and goes, this doesn't yeah. Matter, but you'd know that there was a frame around there. It's on your kind of peripheral vision. So with this, at night, the peripheral bit of the lens catches, like if I'm walking past a street light and it's right in the corner of my vision, it creates at first it was distracting, and now it's like being in a J.J. Abrahams or a Steven Spielberg film. I get these little, <laughs> honestly, I get this little bit of beautiful lens flare that doesn't interfere with my vision, but there's this little halo corona lens flare. So now I'm walking around in, in like a J.J. Abrahams. You've had some suspect thing put in your eye. This is what this sounds like. Amazon have got your details, Harry. They're recording everything <laughs> you're seeing. So that's been my two weeks. That's so funny. 
Oh, God. So, Harry, before we move on to this week's guest, yes, we always do this at the end of the podcast, but at the start of the podcast, we're going to do it. We have had nearly 4,000 downloads of our podcast, but we want to share it even more. So please, everyone listening, make sure you subscribe or just share it or even better, listen to it and then just press download after it five times. It gets our download numbers up. Download it? Yeah, so download it, because when you listen to it, you download it. Ah, right. It's like on Spotify. So then once you've done it, undownload it, and then download it again, and do that five times. That'll what, we're just on. trying to manipulate the system now to make out that uh, we're a better yeah. podcast than we are? Uh, yeah. I can't, I can't, no. In all good conscience, I'm not up for this, mate. No. No. Unbelievable. No. Are you telling we're me you're an ethical podcast. And I will not sully the reputation of this podcast by multiple downloads. That is just, oh, you disgust me. (laughs) We want our subscribers to download all the episodes. Like, if you haven't listened to them all yet, listen to them all. That's what we want you to do. And we want you to share and subscribe and like and share so other people listen to them. But don't listen to Matt. Don't go down that route. That way demons and dragons lie. So, Harry, um, over to our guest this week. Now, I didn't know much about this guy before this podcast. I knew of his organization, but I didn't really know about his story. So I was so excited to chat to him. But you know him a little bit more. So I'm going to hand over to you, Harry, to tell our viewers and do a little bit of an intro for our guest this week. Who is it? This week, Matt, we have got the founder of Farm Sanctuary USA, Gene Bauer. Now, Gene is absolutely like when you think of undercover investigations in factory farms in the United States, all of that undercover Mm -hmm. stuff that shone a spotlight on the cruelty involved in factory farming, Gene was a pioneer in that. So everything that we think of now in regards to exposing factory farming and the cruelty that goes on, Gene was at the heart of that. Gene was at the very, very start of that. And he has a career as an activist that goes back to the 1980s. And what he's done with Farm Sanctuary and the work that he's doing now is quite amazing. The changes that we're seeing on plant-based diets, on campaigning and making such a huge difference, not just in the United States, what he's done and what he's been able to achieve in the decades that he's been working as an activist cannot be understated. And he was such a terrific guest. It was fascinating listening to him. Yeah, and he's an author of numerous books, Harry. He's even an award winner and was inducted into the Animal Rights Hall of Fame, Harry. Yes, he was. Well-deserved, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this week's episode of the Animal Chat podcast with the incredible Gene Bauer. Did you know from an early age, did you have a passion for animals? Did you have an interest in animal welfare or animal rights? Or was that something that you discovered on a journey somehow? You know, for me, coming to animal protection issues was a process. When I was very young, like eight or nine years old, I had a cat who was my best friend. So I was very close to an individual animal at that time. But I was still eating animals without recognizing the harm I was causing by doing so. And I also, as I grew up, witnessed many of the harms that human beings were causing to the natural world and to animals. I grew up in the Hollywood Hills in California, and I remember seeing beautiful oak trees cut down so houses could be made bigger, and that bothered me. 
I saw deer hit by cars. I saw dogs hit by cars. I heard about war and violence on television. And I thought to myself that, you know, I didn't want to be a cog in a wheel of a system that was causing so much harm. So I started getting involved with environmental groups, with human rights groups. And as time went and I started meeting various activists, I learned about factory farming and how inefficient it is, how inhumane it is. And I decided if I can live well without eating animals, without causing unnecessary harm, that's something I wanted to do. So I went vegan in 1985, co-founded Farm Sanctuary in 1986, hmm. and started visiting farms and stockyards and slaughterhouses to document conditions. And we found living animals in trash cans or left on piles of dead animals. So we started rescuing them. And that's how the sanctuaries began. You know, for me, it really came out of this desire not to cause unnecessary harm. And as time went, I came to recognize how factory farming was just such a huge problem. And uh, it wasn't getting the attention it needed, which is why we founded Farm Sanctuary. When you started to visit these places and discover the horrendous things that were happening, how shocking was that for you to start witnessing those things, to actually see that stuff that you'd read about? What was the difference in feeling from hearing about it and knowing that it happened, but actually to be confronted with it and recognize just how significant that suffering was? Mm. You know, witnessing factory farms, witnessing living animals dumped on dead piles was shocking. And first animal we rescued, in fact, was a sheep who we found on a pile of dead animals behind a stockyard. And we were just stunned to find her there and removed her from the dead pile, took her to a veterinarian thinking she would have to be euthanized. She actually recovered and she ended up living with us for more than 10 years. And that, that was Hilda, our first rescued animal. Each time you would go into these places, it was an assault, really, on your humanity. And Seeing what the animals were going through was disturbing. Seeing what people were doing to animals and how in some cases they even became sadistic was also very disturbing. And one of the ways that we were able to continue going in and to continue witnessing this was knowing that from time to time, we would be able to come home with an individual who we would be able to watch heal and recover. And as these animals healed and recovered, it kind of helped us also to heal and recover from what we were witnessing. But mm. when you go into those places, you sort of have to uh, become very task oriented and sort of shut yourself off. Um, and you go in, for me anyway, what I would do, is I would go in, get videotape and get out and um, just focused on that. And then later on, when I was watching the video, remembering and recalling that there's animals still in there in those conditions, that was sometimes more difficult because when I was going in, I was very focused on getting in, documenting and getting out because, you know, I was, you know, in a situation where I wasn't supposed to be there in many cases. So I had very clear focus and with the intent of getting out as quickly as I could. When you were growing up in California, what was the agriculture scene around where you were living? Did you get a sense of that early time or, or did you actually have to go out to other parts of the country in order to see how it worked the process that it was involved with with farming yeah well growing up you know i was pretty much in the city and didn't really have a lot of interaction with farm animals uh, the main thing that i recall as a kid 
were television commercials about like Farmer John hot dogs and Farmer John Dodger dogs. You know, they sold them at Dodger Stadium. And, you know, so I didn't really think much about the pigs at the time. But later on during Farm Sanctuary, I actually investigated Farmer John Slaughterhouse and got in there and got some videotape. But growing up, I really was unaware of what was happening to farm animals. Around Los Angeles, there were not many animals being raised, although just outside of the city, there are large dairy farms that I later on would investigate, slaughterhouses like I mentioned. But I really had no awareness of the production practices as I was growing up. The first time I actually learned that farm animals were suffering was when my grandmother told me about how veal calves were raised. And this was back in the 1970s. And when I learned that, and I was in high school at the time, I said, I'm never going to eat veal again. So that was my first inclination that there were animals suffering for meat, milk, and eggs. But I really didn't have a lot of interaction with animals or factory farming until I traveled around the country. This would have been in the 19th early 1980s, I traveled around the country, I hitchhiked, and I met lots of people, spent time with activists, heard more about animal agriculture, and actually did see some large-scale farms. Although I didn't investigate and go into them, I was around them and learned more about what happens to animals in the agriculture system, learned more about the immense impacts of the system, you know, on animals, on rural communities, on the environment. And that's where I basically became an activist in the early to mid-1980s. I think it's really fascinating, June, that I think it's really hard to sometimes weigh up how much do we want to communicate to young children where their food comes from, because it's such an important thing. And the reason I bring this up is, as you were talking then, I used to be a school teacher. And I remember a sort of, a, we call them teaching assistants in the UK, but basically uh, somebody who was in the classroom with you. And I had one of these teaching assistants and her daughter was in my class. And I used to, I've said this to Harry many, many times, I used to force my children in my class to learn about animals. You know, if you were in my class, you knew you were going to learn about animals. And I remember her saying she did not want her daughter to know anything about where meat comes from, where food, anything to do with the meat industry, the farming industry. And then I, I was also thinking of another pupil who used to come in on non-uniform days in the UK. We had them quite a lot to raise money for charity. She used to always wear a T-shirt that used to have a pig, a cow, uh, a sheep, and just say, we're animals, not ingredients. Mm. And there's this sort of, I always find it really interesting, this sort of balance for some parents about how much they actually want to expose their children. Looking back, do you think it's a good thing or is it even a good or a bad thing that we expose children? I don't want to use the word expose to reveal where their food comes from. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And and I don't know the answer. I don't know what is best. You know, my general inclination is that, you know, transparency and honesty and openness are very good things. And I think children have a natural connection with animals. And unfortunately, as we grow up, we tend to be acculturated and indoctrinated to eat a certain way and to have certain beliefs that enable us to cause harm to other animals or even to other people, you know, prejudices. And, you know, in the U.S. now, there's a lot of awareness about systemic racism that has been here but many of us have really been unaware of it. And when we mistreat other animals, there's sort of a psychological desire, I think, for human beings to start 
labeling or denigrating other animals as not deserving of our care and compassion. So I think there needs to be a way for human beings to grow up aware and ultimately to live in a way that is compassionate and aligned with our humanity instead of living in a way where we become indoctrinated to behave certain ways. And then as we behave these ways, we have a kind of a psychological desire to see ourselves as compassionate, even if our behavior isn't it. And so then we start deluding ourselves or creating these narratives that are not healthy. And, you know, one thing too, I, I should mention when I grew up in Hollywood, I actually, as a child used to do commercials and I would sometimes do commercials for places like McDonald's and KFC. So, and I was an extra, I wasn't like a, an actor, you know, saying lines or anything, but I was in the background, you know, in restaurants walking with trays. So, um, you know, I grew up completely unaware of this industry and part of the whole system, the belief system and the consumer system that was supporting it. And, and I think that is the danger children not being raised and informed about our food system because our food system has profound impacts on other animals as well as on the earth and our own health and well-being also has huge impacts on people around the world in forested areas that are being cut down so that farm animal feed can be raised so it's it's this massive industry and most people are unwitting accomplices in it and so that's where i think It'd be, I wish there was a way for that to be part of the education process, because right now it's somewhat absent and people grow up and adopt practices that are unhealthy. But, but I think one of the main reasons is that their parents and the teachers and the whole community is participating in those unhealthy practices. So I think schools and how children are raised is very much impacted by the community that they grow up in and the practices of the older people in the community. So it's a school issue, but I think it's also a broader community societal issue. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. It's interesting. It's something that we've touched on in previous podcasts here. And one of the things that we've talked about, which is obviously exactly what we're, we're talking about here is the language that we use when we talk about farm animals. And we talk about farm animals as farm animals, as the purpose that they serve to us, you know, food animals, farm animals, or even zoo animals or, or anything like that. And so that language that we use just in general conversation, and especially around children, there's a duality in the way that we use language of animals, whether it be stories or films about animals that humanize them in some way or talk about their personalities and their individuality. But obviously then that's countered by everything else that's related to them just being there for food or for consumption or for whatever else. And it, it's, I can imagine for children, it's an incredibly, they get deadened to it because it's so incredibly confusing that they just revert to the norm, which is what everybody else is doing. Yeah. I, you know, we are very much social animals and we tend to do what those around us do. If everybody is doing a certain thing, we assume that that's what we're supposed to be doing. And, you know, becoming vegan is for many people difficult because they're going to be different than other people around them. Going out to eat is going to be a challenge in many cases, although it's getting a lot easier now, thankfully. But, you know, we do generally want to be part of a community. And if the entire community is behaving a certain way that is incredibly harmful, you know, it's hard to step out of that. And I'm really grateful that there's more awareness now about factory farming, that there are more plant-based options 
and alternatives to animal foods. So it's easier and easier to eat plants instead of animals. But we still grow up in a system where there are beliefs and there are assumptions about our place in the world. And and frankly, it kind of comes down to some arrogance and this assumption that we're entitled to exploit other creatures in certain ways. And in the food industry, it's, I think, worse than in I mean, it's bad in many ways, but when it comes to farm animals, it's the largest number by and large, and these animals suffer horrendously, and they're treated very badly. And so rather than paying attention to that and being reflective and asking ourselves if what we're doing is okay, there's a tendency to say, oh, don't tell me about factory farming. It's too upsetting. I don't want to know. And then when we do start thinking about it, to start denigrating these animals who are abusing so that we feel that it's not that horrible. You know, if, if somebody doesn't deserve respect and they're not getting respect, you feel better about yourself in a twisted, unhealthy way, I think. So being called a pig, for example, is not a compliment. And this is a way that people will denigrate other people by calling them a pig or a turkey or whatever. But they've also implicitly denigrated the pig or the turkey who has done nothing to deserve that, except they were born in this system And in animal agriculture, we control every aspect of the animal's lives. So we have a lot of power over them. And unfortunately, power, I believe, is a very corrupting force. And power undermines our empathy. And when it comes to farm animals, we exert enormous control and power over their lives. And we sadly have lost empathy for them. And in this way, I think we have lost part of our humanity. And so this is where the factory farming issue and our relationship with animals who are exploited for food, I think, is so important for us to look at and for us to address and for us to look at ourselves, but then also to recognize that these are living, feeling creatures who deserve to be treated with respect, with compassion, with dignity. And I believe that when we treat other animals with kindness and dignity, it actually elevates ourselves as well. You know, as opposed to treating these other animals like commodities, abusing them, and then denigrating them and telling ourselves that that doesn't matter, I think we lose a big part of ourselves when we do that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So back in the in the mid '80s, when you were doing the undercover investigations and you were exposing the cruelty that went on in factory farming, am I right in thinking that 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 kind of exposure hadn't really been done publicly before? That what was going on behind closed doors was genuinely behind closed doors. And so when you brought it to light, that was the first time that people started to really see what was happening. And so what was the initial reaction like that to the the people that that you were exposing, the industry that you were exposing, the people that were seeing it? What was it like when you first started to shine a light on the issue? Well, when people saw the images and learned what was happening, they were appalled. Most people were surprised to see how badly these animals were being treated. Um, The way the industry responded was to say, isolated incidents. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. they tried to make the point that what we were showing people wasn't normal. And a lot of our work at the time had to do with downed animals. These are animals too sick even to stand, who are being left on dead piles, left to suffer in alleyways and pens of stockyards. And if they survived, they were dragged onto trucks and taken to slaughter to be used for human food. So this is one of our big campaigns for many years. So in that case, downed animals are not a large percentage of animals, but their suffering was constant. 
And but the industry would say, oh, that's an isolated incident. And I, we would say, no, this is how these animals are routinely treated. But beyond that, animals in factory farming confinement are also routinely abused and inherently unable to express their basic natural instincts in these cages and crates where they can't move. So the industry in those cases, believe it or not, would sometimes argue that this is good for the animals, that this is to protect them from each other or for, they would come up with various rationalizations. So, and that has continued, um, although I think more recently now, the industry recognizes that they cannot continue to sell this idea that the animals want to live in two foot wide crates for their whole lives, which actually tried to sell that idea for a long time. But they're losing that discussion and now are starting to make some changes to production. Sometimes it's been forced by legislation, but the industry is now talking about giving animals more space in cages and crates and and in production systems, which is less bad than in very small crates, but it's still not good. But it's it's a process we're in the midst of, and it acknowledges that these animals have feelings. You know, pigs, for example, don't want to be confined where they can't turn around their whole lives. Chickens should be at least allowed to stretch their wings and engage in some basic behaviors. And as this discussion continues, hopefully it will lead to further discussion and discernment about our relationships with these other animals and kind of push us to ask ourselves, what is okay and and what is our what should human beings be doing and how should we be living on this planet and is it okay to treat other animals this way and and one of the things i often will raise when i'm talking with folks who are not familiar with animal agriculture is to encourage them to think about what it would be like to work in a factory farm or to work in a slaughterhouse where your job is cutting the throats of animals and just how violent and harmful that is to the animals, but also, I think, to the human psyche. And this is a system that is violent. It is harmful. It is not aligned with our values of compassion. It is not aligned with our interests to eat food that is healthy and nourishing and to live on a planet that's not being destroyed by factory farming. So I, you know, my approach is often to try to find common ground and build from there. And I believe most people are humane and would rather not cause unnecessary harm. I think most people would rather eat food that is nourishing and healthy instead of food that makes us sick the way animal products do. I think most people would rather live on a planet that's not being destroyed and forests aren't being cut down and water being polluted by this animal agriculture industry. So if we push and to raise awareness and encourage citizens ultimately to live in alignment with their own values and their own interests, and then also create systems and structures in agriculture and in our food supply that enable that, I think we could see massive shift because what we're talking about is, is something that I think most people basically agree with. And that gives me hope, recognizing that there's an awful lot of common ground that most people are humane and don't want to destroy the planet or hurt other animals. I was really interested to ask Eugene, you've had this incredible career since the 80s in this issue. And the 80s is quite notorious for the Reagan, Thatcher, we kind of use that US-UK comparison of of neoliberalism. And that did that sort of associated deregulation um, concept of neoliberalism that I'm sure we're all familiar with, did that have an effect in the 80s on the factory farming industry? And did it sort of carry on into the 90s? Yeah, you know, Farm Sanctuary was founded in 1986, 
when Reagan was president and when business interests had a lot of sway on public policy. So consolidation of agriculture really ramped up in the 1980s, but consolidation in agriculture is something that had been happening for decades previously, and it continues today. So I believe that with Reagan in the 80s, that even, even today, we're still seeing more and more small farms going out of business, being acquired by bigger farms. So we have fewer large farms producing a greater percentage of the food. Now, this has gotten to a point, though, where people in communities are seeing the harm that this results in. Citizens are learning more about factory farming and thinking they would rather not support it. So there has also, in recent decades, been a growth of organic food, a growth in interest in farmers' markets, community-supported agriculture programs, community gardens. There's even a Food Not Lawns movement. So there's a lot of really promising grassroots movement now as citizens try to eat food that they can feel good about instead of saying, don't tell me I don't want to know about the factory farming because it's so upsetting. There's that dissonance between what people feel good about and, and what is nourishing and healthy and what many people are consuming in terms of factory farm products. So there has actually been a push away from factory farming, but it's, it's not as simple as going from factory farming to going vegan and supporting local farms. There are also labeling marketing programs to make animal products sound a lot better than they are. You know, cage-free, for example, with eggs are certainly not as bad as battery cage egg production, but they're still not good. And it's very easy for us as animal activists to point to problems and say, these are bad things. What is harder and where I think we need to do more is to actually demonstrate and create solutions and say, this is what is good. And so there are a number of advocates who are now in business, you know, like Beyond Meat, for example, and these products that are plant-based replacements for animal foods, I think are going to play a very important role in shifting us towards eating plant foods instead of animal foods. But in addition to that, I think we also need to support a grassroots movement of local diversified farms, including in urban areas, that will also create meaningful jobs for people. And uh, so I think diversity is also important in addition to the sort of mass production plant-based food that is starting to spread. And I'm very glad about that. But I think we also need to have this grassroots movement as well. It's interesting you say that about the plant-based food. You've achieved a lot in your in your life and your activism and your career, but I think it's fair to say that your greatest moment was appearing on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart um, in 2015, which is the pinnacle, I think, of anyone's career. But what was really interesting about that, Gene, was because I was re-watching the video yesterday, and when you were there, you were promoting the book that you had brought out five years ago, which was about a vegan diet and being able to transition as easily as possible. But you acknowledged at the time that it's not something that's super easy to do because at that time there wasn't the availability. But what I thought was really prescient in that interview is you mentioned exactly those things like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. You didn't mention them by name because I think at the time they didn't exist, but you were aware that this was coming and, and you talked about having a greater variety of plant-based options and having this convenience of plant-based alternatives that was really going to be a game changer. 
And certainly in the last couple of years in the United States and in the UK in particular, that's been significant. There just seems to be this flood of all of these options and it's never been easier and there's never been more options to be able to make this ethical, humane, sustainable choice to change the way that we eat. Yes, absolutely. And and not only in terms of meatless meat products, but there are non-dairy milks and, and cheeses and all sorts of alternatives to animal foods that are becoming much more widely accessible. They're becoming more affordable. I think as that production system ramps up, plant-based foods are inherently more efficient than animal foods. You need much more land, more resources for animal foods. So as these sort of economic production systems ramp up in plant-based, I think animal agriculture is going to be, have a really hard time competing. And it's also dependent on government subsidies. There was a report that was done a couple of years ago looking at dairy industry income in the U.S., and they found that 73% of dairy industry income in the U.S. came from government programs, which is just completely unsustainable. And so there are many stories now about dairy farmers who are struggling. And most of these are the small dairy farmers who tend to be bought up by the big dairy farmers. Of course, the big dairy farmers and their lobbying organizations are going to use the plight and the stories of these suffering small dairy farmers to get more government into the big dairy farm. So this is an industry that is completely exploitive, it's extractive, and it is causing enormous harm, including to farmers. And what I'm seeing now and believing is going to be kind of the next push is actually helping farmers to go into plant-based agriculture. You know, we are not anti-farmer, we are anti-cruelty, we are anti-exploitation. And so this is now a big part of the discussion. And Similar to that, there are investments on the part of big meat companies who've historically made a lot of money in animal agriculture who are beginning to invest in plant-based enterprises. So again, we, I think, have a kind of bimodal system where, where you have the large production model and some resources and money tilting away from industrial animal production towards large-scale plant production, although it's relatively very small comparatively, but it's starting to build up. And at the same time, more community-oriented agriculture, where you can actually grow food in your own community. It's fresh, it's healthy. Uh, it connects people more closely to the land, to the source of their food. So that's another aspect of agriculture that I think will start picking up. And so we have a quantity approach and a quality approach. And in this quality area, I think there's a role for farm sanctuaries to play where in addition to providing experiences where people get to interact with animals in a positive way, there could be farm to table events and people can actually go pick their own food or eat food that was prepared right near where it was grown. While we look out in the fields and see the animals who are our friends, you know, so at sanctuaries, animals are our friends, not our food. But ultimately, when it comes to helping protect farm animals, we need a new food system. And I think this is where things are going to now start going and where I think there's a lot of opportunity is to build plant-based agriculture. And I think it also needs to be community oriented, uh, which then is inclusive. And it, and I think it will also help with food justice issues and, and accessibility to food, especially in communities where it's needed. So there's, I think, an expansion of opportunity to address systems of oppression 
through food and create opportunities and empowerment also through food and through new systems and structures in agriculture. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't know if you remember, we mentioned this briefly last year when we were talking and you mentioned it just now about the alternative livelihoods and, and looking yes. at farmers transitioning. And obviously the parallel that I used at, at the time was the work that I do through my organization, which is the dog meat trade, ending the dog and cat meat trade and working with farmers and people who are involved in the industry and transitioning yes. them out of that. And obviously that's a direct parallel because we're talking about farming animals for food. And there is an opportunity there. You know, the farmers are there to... to you know, it's a business, they want to make money. And if there's a way of transitioning into something that is more humane and more ethical and more sustainable, and yet they still have a business and they are still farmers, then that just seems a natural progression, doesn't it? I totally agree. And I loved hearing about the good work you were doing there. And, you know, again, it's not about putting farmers down. And it's instead about creating new opportunities. Because as you say, these are folks that just want to make a living. They don't necessarily want to cause harm. And if there are opportunities to, instead of harming animals, to grow plant foods, I think most people would be happy about it. In fact, many farmers don't like what they're doing in animal agriculture. So I think that they're very open to new alternatives. Gina, I wanted to sort of focus particularly on Farm Sanctuary. And over the last 30 years, you've, you've led and you've developed this incredible organization that, as Harry has said, you know, you've had so many achievements. What was it like when you actually, the actual day-to-day -day logistics of starting that all on your own, how you grew the Farm Sanctuary into this incredible organization that it is today. What was it like starting that up in the 80s? Did you do it on your own? What, what were the logistics of starting this new organization? Well, back in the 1980s, there was no such thing as a farm sanctuary. And it really evolved out of our investigations and visits to farms and stockyards and slaughterhouses where we found living animals left for dead. And we wanted to go into these places to see firsthand what was happening, to be able to accurately describe conditions. And so I co-founded Farm Sanctuary with Lori, who we were married and we got divorced in the early 2000s, but we did this together. And, um, you know, the idea was to just shine a light on the cruelty of factory farming, expose it. And our sort of simplistic thinking was that if people saw this abusive system, they would not want to support it and would go vegan. <laughs> of course, it's a lot more complicated than that. <laughs> but the way we funded it in the early days was by selling vegan hot dogs out of our Volkswagen van at Grateful Dead concerts and environmental fairs and things like this. So from 1986 to 1989, a significant part of our income was with veggie food, veggie dogs. And then in 1989, we were able to, and by the way, between 86 and 89, we lived in a donated row house in Wilmington, Delaware, that a fellow activist let us use. And then we lived in a school bus on a tofu farm in Pennsylvania that another fellow activist let us use. And then by 1989, we were able to afford buying a farm, which we got in Watkins Glen, New York. And then we just started building it up and cleaning it up because it was it was in pretty bad shape when we first arrived. And so then it's just, you know, literally building barns, running fencing, plumbing. And, you know, I learned to do some of those things myself. And and then thankfully, as time went, we were able to garner a fair deal of support and we were no longer necessary to sell the veggie dogs out of our Volkswagen van. And the organization has just continued to grow. And then we acquired a farm in California, and now we have farms in New York and California. But as we've 
grown. And, you know, in addition to rescuing animals, it became very clear that we needed to prevent the problem upstream, that it was not possible to rescue over and over and over again. And so we also tried to push policies to prevent animals from needing to be rescued. And one of our first campaigns had to do with preventing downed animals, animals too sick even to stand from being marketed at stockyards and from being sent to slaughterhouses. And we've had some success there. We've been able to ban the slaughter of downed cows nationwide through USDA policy, but we're also now working to prevent other downed animals, pigs, for example, from continuing to go into the food system. But then we also have worked on policies to prevent intensive confinement of animals. So it's been an ongoing evolution of trying to have the best impact and most successful opportunities to change how we relate to other animals. And it started with rescue and investigations, but then it's now moving more towards systems and structures in agriculture and with farm sanctuary. And now there are a number of sanctuaries. These are locations, these are assets, these are farmland that could potentially be leveraged in new ways in light of a changing, evolving food system and a growing popular awareness about the benefits of eating plants instead of animals, the benefits of interacting with animals in a more compassionate, friendly way, as opposed to in a way that is violent and harmful, not only for the animals, but for us. It's just been an ongoing evolution and that continues. And, you know, in my first book, which came out in 2008, you know, it was really more about the issues and why we needed to deal with factory farming and our investigations and some of our experiences in trying to change the system through advocacy work. My 2015 book, which you mentioned where I was on The Daily Show with, was more of a how to eat vegan. And I've come to recognize that so often people just tend to go with the system they're in. And so in addition to changing hearts and minds, which my first book talked about doing, we also need to change systems and structures. Mm-hmm. And that will, I think, in many cases, possibly move us even faster forward. We need to change hearts and minds. But unless there are systems and structures to support changing behavior, I think that we're going to have a hard time to actually create the vision that we dream about of a world where animals are not being harmed, where the earth is not being destroyed, and where we're living in alignment with our values and interests. So It's a constant evolution and it continues today. And there are many sanctuaries, not only in the US, but around the world. And I'm hopeful that there will be more interactions and sort of joint projects with sanctuaries that help to support this grassroots plant-based food system. Thinking about your journey over since the 80s, if you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice, knowing then what you know now, what would it be? You know, I think one of the things I've come to see is how in the animal movement, you know, we have a lot of passion and passion is a great thing, but there's also oftentimes trauma. And if trauma and angst isn't properly managed, it can lead to, you know, negative activities and negative outcomes. So I think Doing this work, you face enormous violence and abuse and can understandably become somewhat misanthropic. You know, look at what our species does and the harm we cause to other animals and to the earth. But it's important not to go down that that negative path because it then, I think, creates angst and it creates trauma and ultimately makes us less effective. So I think taking care of yourself 
is a very important part of being an activist and being able to stay effective and productive and impactful over time, as opposed to becoming very upset and negative about the abuses that we observe. So I think that would be one of the things I would say, and, and also that this is a marathon that we need to be patient, but also need to be persistent. And it's important to call things as they are and to you know be clear about what our goal is. And now I think we can talk about a vegan world, for example. And I've always talked about that, but I think we're in a position now to be more explicit about it. So um, just being clear about what you want to create. And also for me, one of the pieces of advice, or a couple of them, you know, one is to find common ground and build from there. Instead of focusing on where we disagree with others, whether they're animal activists or people who are not animal activists, find common ground and build. Instead of looking at the disagreement and focusing on that and make, you know, running round and round about disagreements. So find common ground and build. And then the other is you can't control others. You can only control yourself. So if somebody is doing something that really bothers you, I think it's fine to express yourself and be straightforward and honest and let people know what you think. But ultimately, other people are going to make choices about how they live, and you cannot control that. You can only control yourself. So do the best you can and be mindful of how you react to how other people are behaving, because ultimately you can't control them. You can only control yourself. That's such good advice. That's such a, yeah, I was, I completely agree, Harry. That's amazing. Gene, this is purely a question for my interest. And I just wanted to get your take on the recent announcement from Joe Biden about his green, almost green plan, you know, massive investment in the environment and green jobs and so forth. I was just wanting to ask about the Green New Deal in the States and is that something you're aware of and whether that is a good thing that would support your, your work? Yes, I think so. Um, you know, animal agriculture is very entrenched in Washington, D.C. It gets billions of dollars every year in government support. And I have felt for a number of years that we need to start tilting some of those government resources away from animal agriculture towards plant-based agriculture. And I think the Green New Deal and other progressive policies that are starting to be discussed in Washington, D.C., including the Farm Systems Reform Act, that was introduced by Senator Cory Booker, who's a vegan, a member of the U.S. Senate, are good indicators of potential policies that could help. But ultimately, this is a systems issue. And historically, both Democrats and Republicans have been very sympathetic to animal agriculture. And ultimately, we need to create new businesses, new opportunities in the food system. And the government, I think, can play a role in supporting those. And I think the Green New Deal can be part of that bigger discussion. So Harry, I was listening to that and you know something, you see these people today setting up their quirky vegan stalls on the high street, opening their vegan cafes, Yep. you know, just generally promoting a vegan diet and, you know, good luck to them. Uh, this guy, Gene Bauer, he was only doing it in the 80s. A Grateful Dead contest. He was. He was selling vegan hot dogs and yeah. things like that at Grateful Dead. He's a trendsetter. He is. You know what? One of the things, though, I mean, that was an amazing podcast. And yeah. like we said in the intro, Gene has really 
changed the game as far as this plant-based diets and lifestyle and farm animal welfare. But one of the things that he mentioned in that podcast, when he talked about we need to be focusing on the things we have in common rather than our differences, I think is one of the most important messages that we could put forward in animal welfare. Don't you think? Especially when it comes to our food choices, because I, I don't know about you, and I hope I don't alienate anybody by saying this, but I do find it incredibly frustrating when really militant type are so disparaging of people that don't live up to their standards. And I think it's fantastic that really passionate, dedicated vegans have made the choices that they've made and the difference that that makes to the welfare of animals. But to then turn that around and sit in judgment of people who haven't got there yet or are on their way there, I don't think is helpful at all. And I think that's something that needs to change is that we need to understand that everybody's kind of on this path. And as long as you're trying to improve and make things better, and it's not just about the individual, but it's about the environment. Like, you know, now with all the beyond burgers and the impossible foods and things like that, it's that much easier to make these choices. And so we need to be encouraging people for the positives they make rather than to criticize people for the things that they've done wrong. Well, you know, Harry, when in life you take these extreme points of view, you open yourself up for criticism because you know what, when you're so puritanical and I understand the passion, I've been there myself, I understand that you feel so passionate about an argument and you want to change people and your militant and things in your views. And if that's your perspective, that's your perspective, but it doesn't unite people. I applaud people who have a passion. You know, I really like that in people. Completely but right. just remember that no one's pure. You could sit and judge every single person. I always say this about um, politicians and presidents, you know, they're all flawed. They make decisions that sometimes cost lives, that that's the responsibility they have. So expecting people to be almost like angelic or like, a, you know, expecting them to just be perfect all the time and shouting at people because they don't agree with your views. You know, I often think it is Harry as well. Um, I heard somebody say this. It's almost like a short-term moral high ground they want to seek. It's like you and I playing conversation and then I'll throw something down so I can get that moment's moral high ground Mm. and feel good about myself. But actually, the issue we're talking about is probably multi-layered and very complex and can't be summed up in an argument on Twitter or Facebook. You know, these things are difficult. You're absolutely right, Matt. And it's the complexity of these issues. In some degree, it's black and white. There is animal Mm. cruelty. There are things that you can do to mitigate that. But equally, it's not about telling somebody they're wrong. It's about showing them a way of doing better. It's about encouragement. It's about opportunity. It's about helping people to make better choices, not criticizing them for the things that they don't do, but celebrating the things that they do. And you're absolutely right when it comes to this ability to win an argument and, you know, you're just scoring points, but what does that do? That's not going to bring people on side. That's going to alienate people. And that's not what we want to try and do in animal welfare. The idea is to bring people together to improve the welfare animals. And if we're just criticizing people for not living up to the highest of high standards, everybody makes choices and nobody is perfect. And we have to recognize that about ourselves and other people. And all we can do is strive for better. And that's one of the things that I really loved about what Gene was saying in the podcast. It's very much about 
everybody making those choices and working together and making animal friendly choices that are better for us, better for everybody, better for the animals, better for the environment. Exactly. And doing it together, celebrating the things that we are doing well rather than focusing on the differences yeah. between us. And sticking, you know, your um, this is who I am putting my flag in the ground i ain't moving on any of this i'm sorry first of all that's a really naive way of living your life because we all grow we all learn and you learn a lot through mistakes and i heard somebody say you know i've never changed my mind in an argument i always change it in a conversation and you said something really important harry that i agree totally you know say if you talk about animal cruelty you take a meat eater to a like an abattoir they are not going to disagree with you what's happening to that animal is cruel they're not awful human beings when they see like a cow or a calf being killed, they're going to go, that is awful. But actually that's a separate thing to their choices of what they do and how they live their lives. And again, I keep saying, just remember, your phone's probably got conflict minerals in, so stay humble. Um, so Harry, also for our listeners, um, something I just want to say, and I know you might not be able to see this because of your poor eyesight, but I just want to give our <laughs> listeners um, a, a, an understanding Gene is an annoyingly handsome man as well. He has the cheekbone and jawline of Clark Kent. And it's I just wanted to put in that complaint. I would like less handsome guests on the show, if that's okay. I know it's difficult for you, obviously, sharing the spotlight with such a handsome co-host as well. So this month is he, uh, an absolute nightmare for you. Yeah. Just like to be surrounded by such yeah. attractive men. Well, listen, luckily you can't see me, so you don't know how better looking I am. Um, but... Um, yeah, let's just make sure. I felt your face once and it wasn't pleasant. <laughs> I just want to make sure that in future we don't get any more handsome guests on. I want literally five out of tens and less, no sevens or eights, and certainly not a man with his bone structure. Well, I've got some bad news for you. What is it? Next week's guest is also good looking. Oh, for God. Who is it? Tell me, Harry. Next week, yep. we have only got... Do you remember Go on. back in whatever month it was, we had the incredible Jill Robinson, oh, yeah. founder of Animal Asia. Yeah. Well, we promised at the time, I don't know if you remember, that there was going to be an Animals Asia double this season. And here it comes because next week we have Dave Neal, who's the animal welfare director at Animals Asia. And he is going to be talking about his story and the work that he does in Animals Asia, which is complementary to Jill's stuff, but a completely different perspective, a different take. And it was just fascinating to talk to him. I've known Dave for a few years now, and it was a terrific chat. Really, really good talk. We really put the world to rights, I think, in next week's podcast. Yeah, it was it was a really, really good chat. Annoyingly, he is quite a good looking guy. I've just Googled him. Um, this is getting ridiculous. We need to sort we need to have a dialogue about this off air, Harry. It's fair enough. So, folks, make sure you subscribe, like, download several times. Um, leave it up to you and your conscience. And join us in a couple of weeks when we will be back. But in the meantime, stay safe. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening.